Hope you had a restful week, uh, catching up with family and friends. And today is the first day of 2023, and also Sunday, and just want to say Happy New Year. And it's great that we get to start the year with corporate worship. I pray that what's said in 2 Peter 3.18 is true of each and every one of you, that you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now today I'm finishing up this five-part sermon series, Christ in Christmas. Certainly I could have made this a four-part series and just ended it last week on Christmas Day. I mean, what more is there to say than Christ is born? But as we've hinted throughout the entire month of December, or more than hinted actually, there's more to it than Jesus being Christ prophet, priest, and king, and him being born. His death is central to the salvation message. I was recently reminded of how Christ's birth and death are intimately related, and it has to do with the dating. Have you asked yourself, why is Jesus' birthday celebrated on December 25th? Is there some biblical reason? With the help of Daniel 9, we can get into the ballpark of his birth year. But it's not so easy with the month and the day. My best attempt was to start with Luke 1. Guess when Zacharias went into the temple? Go to 1 Chronicles 24, look at his priestly division about Abijah. Assume it was late May, early June, or late November, early December. Assume again that Elizabeth became pregnant not too long after that. And even with all those calculations... I got Jesus' birthday falling on September or March, not December. So while the Bible clearly teaches incarnation as true, not much is known about the exact date. Just as well, if the Lord really wanted us to know, he would have told us. To me, it doesn't matter what day we celebrate Jesus' birthday, December 25th works for me. Now, there is one explanation of this date origin that irks me. It goes something like this. Once the Christians took political power, they converted a Roman pagan holiday, Christianized it to be the birthday of Jesus. It went from a winter feast called Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, to Christmas. The claim is that we want to make our religion more palatable, marketable to the heathen. It appears many have bought into this explanation of Christmas origins. But the problem is, it's not true. It's not until a millennium after Jesus' birth that such transfers even documented. Even then, it's in a marginal note on a 12th century Syriac commentary. There's a better explanation for setting Jesus' birthday on the 25th of December, or around there, and it goes like this. Believers from as early as 4th century proposed that Jesus was conceived on the same day he died. So if the dates of Christ's conception and his death are around late March or so, his birth would have been around late December. 
This theory is based on an ancient Jewish thought that creation and redemption occur at the same time of the year. It's found in writings of Augustine of Hippo on North Africa, Epiphanus of Salamis in Europe. This suggests early widespread acceptance. So now if we're going to continue to celebrate Christmas on December 25th, we have a better historical explanation than the whole Christians ripped off a pagan holiday to advance their propaganda hypothesis. Now, where am I going with this? Even if it turns out that Jesus was not conceived on the day he died, it's still true that Jesus was born to die. Whether those days in the calendar coincided or not, we know that incarnation and salvation are connected. The manger and the cross, the cradle and the grave. As Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 4 4-5, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's God himself, who's God's son himself, who says in Hebrews 10, 9, 10, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ, Jesus Christ, once for all. So all this to say, if we're going to go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere that Jesus Christ is born, we must also tell them that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So today, to get us focused on that message, Christ crucified, we'll turn to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, and I'll read from the passage in a moment, but first let's talk about the beginnings of the Corinthian church. In the middle chapters of Acts, Paul's on his first extensive journeys as a missionary. In the late 40s, Paul's second trip led him, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, note his use of we, to leave Troas, cross the Aegean Sea, and arrive in the region of Macedonia. After the teammates on key stops there, the brethren got Paul out of danger on a ship by himself to the province of Achaia, to Athens. There, Paul didn't take a break, waiting for his friends to rejoin him. He got to work sharing the gospel in the synagogue, in the marketplace, and on a hill called Areopagus. Next, Paul made his way westward to Corinth. There, he made new friends, reunited with old ones, faced hostile Jews, and saw many converts. The typical pattern of his ministry. But it seems even Paul needed encouragement. The Lord appeared to him in a vision and told him in Acts 18.9, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in the city. This was just what Paul needed. He continued for a year and a half. It's always a good sign in Acts when Paul stays at one place for some time. Not for his health, but for the health of the church. Back in chapter 11, Paul was brought to Syrian Antioch. 
He taught many of them for a whole year. The result? The disciples became effective witnesses. They were called Christians for the first time. Later in chapter 19, we'll see him in Ephesus for a few years. There he'll train up the disciples daily in the school of Tyrannus. He'll raise up the elders of the church. Result, all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Even under house arrest in Rome, in chapter 28, for two whole years, Paul had an effective ministry. Without fear and without hindrance, he received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. Now back to Corinth. We see the results of God working through Paul in the opening words of 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, in Christ they were sanctified. Through Christ, the grace of God was given. With Christ, they're called into fellowship. They're enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. The testimony of Christ was confirmed in them. They come short in no gift as they wait for the revelation of Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds like everything's fine and dandy here. Right? Well, we get to verse 10, and we see that not all is well at Corinth. And so let's read from there to chapter 2, verse 5. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, to chapter 2, verse 5. If you're following along in your pew Bible, it's page 795. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take one as a gift from us to you. 1 Corinthians 1.10-2.5 Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am a Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I have baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
For you see your calling, brethren, that many, not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Apply to our church, our church context in particular, Consider, consider this sermon today a kind of a vision or goal-setting exercise for our congregation. But as we break down this passage, I want you to know that the gospel is the solution to four major problems. One, church division. Two, lost sinners. Three, human pride. And three, bad evangelism. First, the gospel of Christ alleviates the problem of church division. Gospel of Christ alleviates the problem of church division. That's what we see in verses 10 to 17. Secondly, the message of the cross saves lost sinners. The message of the cross saves lost sinners. We see this in verses 18 to 25. Thirdly, the good news of God's election breaks down human pride. The good news of God's election breaks down human pride. That's in verses 26 to 31. Fourthly, in chapter 2 now, verses 1 to 5, we see how the simple testimony of Christ crucified fixes our bad evangelism. The simple testimony of Christ crucified fixes are bad evangelism. First, the gospel of Christ alleviates the problem of church division. When we look at verse 10, and when we look around churches today, you might think, how is unity even possible? Paul's pleading that all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among us, but that we be perfectly joined together in the same mind, and in the same judgment. Such oneness goes beyond mere surface commitment. He's talking about oneness that moves from inside out. It seems like a, such a high and lofty goal. But we should, like Paul, plead for unity by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What often hinders unity in Christ is the cult of personality. There's a huge problem when the name of Jesus is just another name. 
That's when people will rally around lesser names. Somehow the Corinthians started caring more about the names of those who baptized more than the name of Jesus into whom they're baptized. If we're honest, we make the same mistake ourselves. We might care more about the names on the pews, the names of pastors, names of our favorite preachers on radio, names of generous donors. Maybe we care too much about our own names. Honestly, one time I felt envy for someone who was baptized by famous pastors. Once I was in a small group with a guy from Philadelphia. He grew up in the 10th Presbyterian Church. There he was uh, dunked as an infant by James Montgomery Boyce. He then later moved to D.C. where he was properly baptized as an adult by Mark Dever. That's pretty cool to share the stage and the pool with such respected names. But we must never forget Acts 4.12, what it says about the name of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The names beside his in 1 Corinthians 1.12-13, what are they? They're mere servants. They're just stewards. They're only ministers. If we follow Paul's example, we focus less on gifted individuals and their names and more on the gift of God and Christ's name. Focusing on him will be key, not on some other common ground or interest. One of my favorite illustrations about Christian unity comes from A.W. Tozer. I shared this before. He wrote, quote, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. The 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Paul's grateful that in the time he spent in Corinth, he was never put on any pedestal. He was able to focus on evangelism, though he did baptize a few. He placed the good news of Jesus and his name front and center where it belonged. And he does the same here in the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians. So we go on to verses 18 to 25, and Paul reviews the gospel as a solution for lost sinners. Now we learn from Paul here that there's no way to package the true gospel message to make it something it's not. In other words, no matter what florid language you use, no matter what master class you take online, However long you study under the best speakers of today, the pure gospel will always be foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. It'll be nonsense to the lost. You'll sound like a babbler even if you use proper grammar and perfect vocabulary. But why is the message so offensive? Well, we as humans like to earn what we receive, We like to feel good about ourselves after a hard day at work. 
But because the good news of Jesus only asks for faith, boasting is excluded. It's designed to make us feel helpless like a baby because we are helpless to save ourselves. It makes us feel like a beggar because we bring nothing before God and we need him desperately. Because the gospel is of grace, God is truly patronizing us. Our resumes, CVs, accomplishments, accumulated knowledge amount to nothing. As predicted in Isaiah 29, 14, the Lord destroys the wisdom of the wise and brings to nothing the understanding of the prudent. No flesh may boast in his presence. Learning may make you a wise scholar. Writing may make you a bestseller. Talking can make you a great debater. But human power and intelligence will not get us into heaven. So how do we get saved? Only through Jesus Christ. Even though the Lord has revealed his wise ways in creation and in his word, we do not know God through wisdom. Like the Jews, we demand miraculous signs as excuse for unbelief. Like the Greeks and the educated elites, we make knowledge our idol. So God presented the message of salvation in a completely unexpected way. The idea of a crucified Messiah trips up the Jews. They wanted a great hero like Moses or David. As for the Greeks, they wanted some philosophical expert like Plato or Socrates. What they got was someone who spoke simple things children can understand. Yet Jesus is the only hope for eternal life. To enter heaven, his work on the cross must be your only boast. It was there that the Lord of glory was crucified in weakness. He died for our arrogance and pride, our law-breaking. He became our redemption by substitution, paying the penalty of sin we should pay in hell. He rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven. Someday, he'll return to judge all mankind. But before we face God's judgment, before it's too late, we must repent and believe. Turn from our own wisdom, self-righteousness, your New Year resolutions to become holy can't save you. Trust in Jesus and his work, his finished work can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. He will not disappoint you or leave you. Claim the promise of 1 Corinthians 1.8. The Lord Jesus Christ will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of his revelation. Now, as many of us know, placing our faith in Jesus is humbling, And even as we grow in Christ, we need constant reminders of our humble beginnings. That's because we may delude ourselves into thinking we did something great to get to where we are. Here again, the gospel is crucial. It not only saves lost sinners, it breaks down human pride, even among the saved. In the rest of 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31, 
Paul reminds the saints of what they were before Christ. Look at the repeated emphasis on God's act of election in verses 27 and 28. Three times he says, God has chosen. And not because we're choice meat, not because we're the best quality in the batch, not because we're the cream of the crop. Precisely the opposite. Only a few were wise, mighty, noble among those who belong. God chose the foolish, the weak, the base, those outside looking in to shame their counterparts. This was to demonstrate that none should boast in themselves. All should boast in Christ who has become our everything. Wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's an important spiritual practice to remember our humble beginnings. Here's one way to see your calling as Paul commands in verse 26. I encourage you to write and or rehearse your personal testimony this year. It doesn't have to be long. You don't have to write a book. Paul's conversion testimony presented to King Agrippa in Acts 26, I counted, it's about 550 words. And you could make your own personal gospel tract. Don't have to write a book. I remember being, having to do this for evangelism explosion, and it was very helpful. And consider the impact it have on those who read or hear your salvation story. Your friends, neighbors, children, grandchildren, and maybe even great-grandchildren and beyond. It could be shared around the table or at your funeral alongside your eulogy. Even in the house of mourning, you can point to Christ. When others see the amazing grace that saved a wretch like you and me, they'll marvel at how God chooses the unworthy and breaks down human pride. The gospel not only humbles the listeners, it humbles those who present it. We'll need to continually work on the way we talk to others about Jesus. We turn to the first few verses of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians for some guidance here. We can learn from Paul's example and work on the problem of bad evangelism. But what exactly is bad evangelism? It's not necessarily being bad at talking. What's good evangelism? It's not necessarily being a good talker. At some points, I believe bad evangelism is gospel presented with distractions. Good evangelism is the gospel presented in the fear of God. First, bad bad evangelism is presenting the gospel with distractions. Here, we usually think of speech problems, ums and likes, stuttering and mispronunciations. Yes, they can be distracting. I've tried to minimize those over the years. But there are other kinds of distractions. Some lead their listeners to marvel at the speaker's eloquence, intelligence, dictionary-like vocabulary, encyclopedic knowledge. There may be good things in themselves, but They can be distractions when presenting the gospel. When Paul arrived in Corinth, he made sure to keep the testimony of God at center. 
I think that with all his smarts and training, Paul's determination to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified could have been difficult at first. Remember, Paul's no dunce. He was born in Tarsus, no average city. He was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, a highly respected teacher of the day. He advanced in Judaism beyond his contemporaries. Paul could have easily included persuasive words of human wisdom. He purposefully chose not to do so. He wanted believers' faith in God's power, not in human wisdom. But like Paul, put on the spotlight what most deserves the spotlight, the gospel. That gets the messenger out of the way and makes way for God's power and God's spirit. Now let's talk about good evangelism. It not only avoids distractions, good evangelism presents the gospel of Christ in the fear of God. By the way, there's a narrative out there that Paul tried to be intellectual in his approach at Athens, fell flat on his face, and then went to Corinth in weakness, fear, and much trembling. I don't buy that. I believe he always presented the gospel in the fear of God. Now, fear and trembling do not sound very pleasant, do they? But all of us need such godly reverence, whether we're laymen, or clergymen, whether we speak God's word or receive God's word, whether we're talking about our relationship with our master in heaven or our masters on earth. And when we're doing something as weighty as presenting the gospel, of course there should be fear and trembling. But not fear of the people who might persecute us. But like Paul, just as we have to work at eliminating distractions, we have to work on fearing God more than fearing man. That's what our Lord commanded in Matthew 10, 26 to 29. We must fear the Lord above all. That's what makes good evangelists. So let me conclude now. On the first day of 2023, I want to remind you, and I'm talking to dedicated members of this church, there is no easy way to grow as a church. I didn't get a vision from God that he has many people in Elkridge or Howard County. I just know that we must determine not to know anything among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is our church going to turn it around and grow this year? Again, I don't know. I just know that our faith must be in the power of God, not in the wisdom of men. Please don't despair and conclude that we're at some impossible disadvantage as a church. You may see the empty seats and think it's impossible. Never forget that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Let's not be ashamed of it. And before we go out into the world this week, let's start our witness here at the Lord's table. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, we'll proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for your word. Or how it can feel like a burden, like fire trapped in our bones. We need to tell others. It feels like at times it all depends on us. But Lord, we know that it's you that does the transformation. It's your spirit that does the regeneration. Lord, it's your son that does the saving. Our job is to be witnesses. Our job is to be ambassadors, to present the gospel. Pray that we would be faithful in doing that this year. Lord, not wait for others to do it, not make excuses. Be disciplined. Determine not to know anything among the lost except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So whatever that means in our individual context and circle, teach us through your spirit this week. Work, neighbors, whether it's talking with strangers or talking with friends, talking with coworkers. Please ask, we ask that please, that your word will not only remain with us, but spread to others. We ask that you be glorified. This is our prayer. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.